0: FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. My name's Kate Halliwell. I'm Head of Diet
1: and Health Policy at the FDF. and I'm going to be chairing this session on sustainable healthy diets. So from my perspective, sustainable healthy diets has been something that's been on my kind of watch list for several years now, but I feel like it's really come to the fore in the last probably 12 to 18 months. And we're certainly seeing that in terms of company questions into FDF, but also, I think, NGO and government engagement. And of course, with the National Food Strategy coming out later, well, not later this year, next year even, um, that's going to bring the real focus into this area again. So of course, as companies, you will all be doing lots of work, both on environmental policy and on uh, diet and health and they're both in themselves really complicated so I think it's a valid question to ask why are we trying to bring these two really big areas together. Um, But I guess to me anything that is focusing on either trying to change our food systems or looking at consumer choices inevitably is going to impact across both environmental issues and dietary issues. And so we need to find a way that we can look at both of these things and weigh them up together, particularly because they don't always kind of work in the same direction. So we need to have a mechanism by which we can look and assess across the piece impacts that we may well have. I think um, what is very clear to me, though, is that all sectors of the food industry absolutely have a critical role to play within this. As FDF, uh, we probably started seriously working in this area about 12 months ago to develop a policy, starting by looking at the WHO principles in this area, Um, and we're very committed to helping our companies work uh, together as this policy sort of develops, and we actually move into what are the actions, how do we measure it. So I'm really pleased that we're having this session as part of our convention. We've got four excellent panellists who uh, will be taking your questions, and they run across the range of um, academic to uh, government policy and and looking at ways that we can measure our impacts, um, as well as, of course, the all-important consumer uh, and what they actually might want to do in this space. So, uh, to kick us off, I think uh, it'd be great to have a an idea of uh, where government thinking uh, might be going in this area and policy drivers. So, first up, I'm going to hand across
2: to Joe. Thanks for the introduction, Kate. Um, it's really, really uh, lovely to speak to you all today. Um, I know there are 98 of you, I can see, so I can't see all your faces, but it, it, it's it's great. Um, so, I'm Joe. I'm a policy lead at the National Food Strategy, and I look at um, tax and reformulation as the, as the areas I lead on um prior to this i worked on engagement in the national food strategy and while it was paused over COVID 19 i worked in the food uh vulnerability directorate um so the national food strategy part one was released in um in in, in july and um hopefully you'll all be aware of that i'm happy to go into more detail but given we've only got two minutes to do our introductions, I thought I'd just go straight to part two, which is what we're working on currently. And it's really focused on transformative um, change, really transforming the food system, acknowledging that the current system doesn't really deliver the environmental, climate or health outcomes we want to see. And so what Henry is really focused on is shifting the food system, one that's focused on incentivizing volume and production of food to these broader outcomes. And this is going to require interventions Quite large interventions, possibly on a quite systemic scale. Um, I think the good news in relation to health sustainability is actually that they are they can be very closely linked. Um, we often say that if there's kind of one thing we could do with a strategy, would be to get people to eat more vegetables. Um, and so, given that, given the health and environmental benefits of doing those kind of things, there is scope to shift diets and change diets to deliver both health and environmental outcomes. And so, I'm really, really interest to hear your questions, but also your thoughts on this area and how we achieve that shift, um, particularly in interventions that go beyond education. Um, so, yeah, looking forward um, to the discussion, looking forward to today, and um, thanks very much for having me along.
1: Thanks ever so much, Joe. Um, next up, Nikos, do you want to um, give a quick overview?
3: Thank you very much uh, for having me, um, and I'm really delighted. I could see we have So it's a big participation and it's about uh, 100 attendees, which is great. And it's also the quality of attendees that the FDF convention attracts people that could make things happen. And I really love to speak with them, people. It's a very nice interactive option we have to educate ourselves. Before being an educator for the last 10 years, working in... uh, Now, the last three years in the University of uh, of, uh, Reading, Um, I used to run project teams for Unilever and there I started realizing the enthusiasm people in the food and drink industry have. A lot of people out there, they forget that we are part of the human potential that uh, has a lot of care and affection for other people and the environment um, and I have witnessed that in great deal in Unilever and in other companies. I'm very happy to represent in a sense EIT food and I was asked to tell to delegates something that I'm very proud to endorse because I was really very excited with the EIT food and having our food kick ourselves in the food sector so EIT food is Europe's leading food innovation initiative Uh, for those of you you're not very familiar working to make the food system more sustainable healthy and at the end of the day also trusted because i think sometimes consumers might be a bit worried Uh, i think lesser now than before the university of reading of course my university is a prominent partner of the eit food community we're leading one of the centers and the important thing is if you see where the programs of the eit food spans is starting from agri-food companies and extends to research centers universities startups across the food chain value who somehow work together and we try to guide and accelerate the innovation process, hopefully via this transforming the food system. And I'm, I'm, I will invite you all, if it's possible, to spend a little bit of time learning about the EID food a uh, project, and perhaps considering what alliance you might bring with your company and the project, because it's a very welcoming environment, I'm very sure, and I have a very good friend, Paolo Gevedoni, who is the uh, uh, member in the directorship there, uh, a couple of other people, EIT Food. EU is a very good uh, uh, link for you to, to go. Sorry if I've spent a little bit of time for that initiative, but I think it's a very good initiative. I wouldn't do it if I wasn't believing in it. And we're very proud we have it. For my particular case, I am here because I think we have an opportunity. We need to learn to change challenges into opportunities, and I think people in the food industry do that every day, to be honest. So apologies if I, wearing my academic hat, said we need to, because you do it. Um, but perhaps that particular challenge of feeding the population of the planet by 2050, the opportunity of utilizing materials that now go to waste and claiming the valuable ingredients because that way we could use the shortage by claiming the ingredients and putting them back and we need to take the opportunity to create equality and see how we that we were blessed perhaps for no particular reason to be born in the right parts of the world where affluency was more prominent. We could do this new approach of sustainable diets to work for all of us in the world and that will be very fulfilling. I think uh, in in different parts of the world might be fulfilling for different reasons but it will be very fulfilling. Thank you very much and I hope to enjoy the discussion with questions. That's
4: great, thank you. Will, over to you. Thanks Kate, uh, morning everyone. Uh, so my name is Will Nicholson I work at the Food Foundation I run a piece of work called Plating Up Progress, which is uh, a collaboration with the World Benchmarking Alliance, who some of you may be aware of. Um, They're putting together a global benchmark for the food and ag sector, um, where companies across the value chain can be assessed across multiple issues, such as climate change, nutrition, biodiversity, water use, human rights, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and the, the work we're doing at the Food Foundation is very much a, a national spotlight equivalent of that in the UK. Uh, so we're looking um, at supermarkets, the food service caterers, and the restaurant chains, both quick service and casual dining. So not not actually looking at the manufacturers, but the overlap between the sectors, I think, is 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 pretty strong. Um, So we produced a dashboard this year that maps where companies are in terms of commitments, targets and performance data against health and nutrition, sustainable diets, climate change, biodiversity, a multitude of issues Um, that I I won't rattle on about the findings in detail, but I think what's really interesting is across the sectors, we find um, there's some fairly significant gaps in terms of targets being set by companies for healthy and sustainable diets. So that would include... Um, uh, reducing fat, salt, and sugar, obviously, but also to to Joe's point earlier, things like increasing sales of veg or, or revenue proportionate revenue that's coming from sales of veg, um, and the the plant based pr- protein piece in terms of diversifying the protein portfolio for companies. Um, we also see a number of supply chain issues that I won't go into in, in any detail here, but it's things like Scope three emissions soy sourcing from water stress regions and things like that. What I think is really, really interesting is we're working primarily with the businesses themselves and investors to understand how we can um, create change in a way that that stacks up as a business case. So in, in in a sense, we're not interested in the fact that there are targets missing, but we're really interested in why companies aren't setting those targets. And how do we fix that? How do we create the, the, the circumstances and the, the business case for change, which probably speaks quite a lot to, to the work that Joe's involved in the National Food Strategy? You know, what's, what's the role of policy here? What's the role of investors um, as the, the holders of the purse strings and things like that? i um, super interested to hear what the questions are. I think that's, that's probably enough for me um, at this stage. Great. Thanks,
1: Will. Uh, and last but not least, Jenny.
0: Hi. Well, thank you for inviting me to be part of the panel this morning. Um, I'm Jenny Arthur. Um, I wanted to give you um, a brief overview of some of the work we've done here at Leatherhead looking at healthy and sustainable diets. At Leatherhead, um, I head up the nutrition team, but I work across the whole business. So at Leatherhead, we combine science with the consumer perspective, but we also look at regulatory implications as well. We surveyed a thousand consumers earlier this year about their attitudes towards um, sustainable diets. And some of the top line findings, seven out of 10 consumers are concerned about resources available to feed the world. 50% reported that they were making changes to their diet. So, for example, buying locally, eating less meat, eating more plant-based foods. It is becoming a more mainstream issue. We did some research back in 2014 where consumers were really unsure about what sustainability meant to them. So, just to give you um, a couple of examples of questions that we ask, what does sustainability mean to you? So um, responses that we had, consider the need of the future, conserving energy and resources and being aware of the environmental impact. Not surprisingly, um, avoiding packaging, particularly plastics and certain ingredients like palm oil. They wanted something that they could continue in the long term. Then we went on and asked, what does a healthy and sustainable diet look like? And this was good quality and a balanced diet mainly plant-based, eating less meat, cooking from scratch with less food waste, and then looking for a long-lasting way of eating, easy to maintain. And then the third question I thought you might be interested in that we asked them was, what are the characteristics of a sustainable product? So responses were less processed, simple and natural, locally produced and seasonal, less packaging and plastic, ethically sourced ingredient, low-carbon footprint in essence does not deplete the world's resources so at leatherhead as health and healthy sustainable diets are being pushed up the government agenda we're increasingly seeing food and beverage companies coming to us wanting support from a product perspective as well as a packaging perspective And people are always interested to see what kind of work that that we are doing. So we look at, for example, food contact materials. So where the food is in contact with the packaging, we're looking at sustainability-led regulatory frameworks. We cover about 150 markets worldwide and we have 20 native speakers. Um, We also look at labelling and claims on packaging as well. From a product's perspective, um, we're looking at new types of packaging. We're looking at accelerated shelf life testing of the packaging, of the products in the new packaging. We're looking at lots of different meat alternatives. We're looking at new ingredients, compliance and registration. And also we're looking at food safety risk and assessment for new ingredients. So as you can see, the food industry are busy at work looking at healthy and sustainable diets. This is a very... um, quick snapshot of some of the work that we've been doing. Um, and hopefully I can expand on some of it in during the session. So back to you, Kate. I'm sure we can get you to expand, Jenny.
1: Um, <laughs> thank you, everyone. That was great. Um, I'm going to kick us off. Um, so listening to each of you there, I think you all at some point mentioned either increasing vegetables or more plant-based foods. Um, so, I guess first of all, to you, Joe, if you could you possibly expand a bit there around the kinds of the policy areas that you're thinking about within the national food strategy, and then particularly thinking around increasing vegetables or increasing plant based eating, the types of things you're considering that might kind of help in that area
2: yeah of course. um, so I think one of the big areas we're looking at is um reformulation of products, and we're particularly interested in blended products, so products where you take a ready meal or you take a burger and you you know it it turns from a hundred percent beef burger, let's say to a twenty percent mushroom eighty percent beef burger um There was some research I think done by Stanford that shows that actually consumers in a kind of blind taste test actually either don't notice or find these products even slightly better tasting i agree there's like a massive kind of at the moment the market seems to be very very focused on meat and if consumers kind of want to buy a meat product they will buy that or if consumers want to get a vegan product they buy that um we are very very interested if there can be a shift towards those products kind of as i say being blended together and meeting in the middle um because of the huge kind of like Health benefits um, in terms of kind of increasing fruit and vegetable intake, but also the the environmental benefits that would bring. Um, it seems like quite an attractive area, and one that we are just—I mean, I should say—we are in our very early stages of our thinking, and I and I are approaching this from like and from a very learning perspective. So this is an area we are really considering. Um, and I understand the consumer barriers to that, but we've seen how quickly vegan diets and demand for that has taken off. You know, is there scope for? a similar kind of movement towards blended products um, in in, in the food industry? I mean, that is the open question, which I don't have an answer yet. (laughs) Fair
1: enough. Uh, Well, well, let's take that to Jenny then, as she works quite a lot with the food industry. Do you think that is something that um, companies
0: are investigating at the moment? They're definitely looking at new ingredients. They're looking at new types of ingredients. I think you need to go back to the consumer because when you're looking at a blended product, you need to understand why that particular person is buying that product. Is it because they want it to be like a meat product or they want it to be a meat alternative? So I think we have to kind of um, look from that point of view. Also, I do think there is a place for, as you're saying, reducing the meat content and adding in the protein element. Again, you need to understand the functionality of the ingredients, um, how they how they can work together, and obviously, um, that's going to have slight problems um, as well. Companies are looking at lots and lots of different meat alternatives. Um, lots of new and novel ingredients are coming are coming onto the market. So, I think there is um, there is a move and a shift towards it. I'm wondering whether people, because we've moved from being meat eaters to vegan, which I always thought was was quite a big jump, and why we didn't sit somewhere in the middle in kind of the sort of flexitarian kind of category. So definitely, I think your idea's got a, it's, there's definite, definite, I think there would be a market for it. Okay, interesting. And if I can come to you, Nicholas,
1: because I know that some of the areas you've looked at have been around the kind of trade-offs that we make if we move entirely to plant-based within nutrition specifically. Um, So I guess it'd be great to get your thoughts both on that, but also if a blended product could actually help
3: that. I think Nix
1: is on mute.
3: I think you're still on mute actually. Thank you, yeah. Thank you very much Kate. You'll find I'm very much an advocate of trying to avoid the extremities. It's not good for anything. I hope Jenny will endorse that. It's not good for nutrition, Yeah, you know, too, too much extreme. And it might not be very good for nature too. I think the, the problem we have at the moment is we need to go steadily to things and we need to balance quite a number of things. Nutrition of our people is one, And then sustaining that nutrition is another, and how we could do that in a socially responsible way too. Uh, People in underdeveloped parts of the world, they have to rely a lot on plant-based direction because they cannot sustain the income to get more animal parts. And then this creates aspirations, and they go, when they can, enormously to the animal part. Uh, which is not helping their health. If you see the problems we have globally on on the obesity epidemic, on metabolic syndrome epidemic, you see countries going out of poverty and they're just jumping straight to cardiovascular issues and, and obesity issues. The hybrid sort of, the, um, the blended uh, um, opportunity, blended uh, sort of Materials where we combine smoothly the transition, it is very important, it is feasible. And the other thing we need to start appreciating is when we see diets where we have very strong plant-based components, I'm afraid we are lacking yet on the research to understand how we could absorb the nutrients in. You see, for instance, comparison with high animal uh, component diets and high plant-based diets where digestibility of proteins is is dropping from 90-95% in the animal-rich components down to 75%. And I just wonder if we go massively on the plant diets before we do the right research to address the challenges of understanding how the processing will enhance bioavailability of the plant-based component, what does it mean for us saving the sort of feeding the increased population of the planet? Because you would need more materials. Hopefully, I see the likes of Joe being with us, perhaps governments could start addressing more the element of plant-based diets are important. But do we understand how we could work on the bioavailability of the components? 20 years ago, it was the question for engineers like me, well, can you make the processing not only safe, but sustaining more nutrients? And chemically, we sustain them now. The issue is from the plant-based diets. Can we also start aligning the processing element with increasing the bioavailability? And I hope we will get some encouragement there, but I'm going to give my research a lot to that because a lot of people in the underdeveloped world will benefit when people could have to live on leafy materials that give you a dreadful bioavailability. Provitamin A carotenoids can be absorbed only 10% from leafy materials. You wonder why they have vitamin A, uh, deficiency, and this is an epidemic in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I mean, I do appreciate we all have suffered the COVID epidemic, but if you ask the Sub-Saharan Africans, they've been in B A D epidemic for decades.
1: Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Really interesting. Uh, and thinking about that kind of bringing in the global aspects of this as well, of course. Um, so, and actually linked to what we've just been talking about, I had a question in uh, that asks about how can we balance a move from blended products, or towards blended products rather, uh, with a demand which I think you mentioned in, from your research, Jenny, about with the demand for natural, unprocessed and whole foods. Uh, and I think all of us who work in the industry have seen that kind of trend from consumer labels, um, but of course that doesn't necessarily kind of balanced together. Um, Jenny, did anything come up in the research about that kind of how you can balance these two aspects together? Oh, you're on mute as well. We're not doing very well on our mute buttons,
0: panel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, coming up from Nikos's point as well, we've been working with an American charity called Harvest Plus, who have been looking at biofortified crops and so what we did for them um, was exactly what you were asking all about. We were looking at the bioavailability of, so they bio, their crops are, so for example, they're high in vitamin A, they're high in zinc, they're high in iron, they have different crops. And what we did was look at the bioavailability of what what products could we then put those crops into mm. so from a kind of science perspective. Science perspective, that, that's what we looked at. We also looked, we also spoke to consumers as well and said, you know, do you understand what biofortification is? How do you feel about this? Um, and then we also looked at it from a regulatory aspect, because you need to understand what you can say about the products, what claims you can put on the, on the packaging as well. And they are looking to use their crops, particularly within, um, within the sub-Saharan African um, markets. So I think that is a that is a, a more natural way of incorporating higher quality um ingredients um in into products. And you were asking about sort of they're looking for the clean and natural, but obviously it it's kind of but consumers also say they still want the same like shelf life on products that they're used to. And those two don't kind of sit together. And when you start explaining that to consumers about if you want this simple, clean, natural, um, the two can't really sit together. So I think that's something that the consumer is going to have to come around to. But at the minute, I don't think they're quite there.
1: Interesting. And I think I know um, I was part of a conversation, which I think actually Joe was involved in as well, at a round table where we were talking around um Effectively, again, in that balancing, if you say have a move towards non dairy milks, but then you would fortify those with calcium, for example, because people are using it as a dairy substitute, that actually that kind of then makes it seem not as natural. Um, and those kind of balancing ups, I think, of where people get their nutrients from, um, how they perceive those that are present inherently in food and those that are added is something that we'll really have to look at as we kind of roll forward with this. I just wanted to bring Will in whilst we're still sort of talking around this kind of area. And I was wondering, Will, from the Plating of Progress, um, in your experience, have you seen that the, the, the uh, retailers and, and out home sector are kind of focusing in on what they can do in the product itself, so as in make that more plant-based, or is it more of a kind of broader supply chain uh, that they're
4: looking at? Um yeah I think uh the in specifically in the retail sector there's been an awful lot of innovation obviously in terms of the products and most of the big supermarkets have got their own plant-based ranges already now they've done quite a lot of work in their ready meals um it's it's kind of still in the pilot phase isn't it so we generally companies are testing out the water which is why um quite possibly we don't see that many with clear targets that are indicative of shifting their business models in a certain direction. Um, Having said that, Tesco's recently um, set a target to increase their sales of plant-based proteins in within their own brand range by 300%, I know Unilever made a very big announcement um, only a week ago in terms of protein diversification. So we are seeing quite a lot of prote- of, of uh, product-based innovation that is, over time, starting to filter through into, into uh, targets that relate to healthy and sustainable diets in, in that sense. Um, but, but but of course, what, what we tend to see is a bit of a dichotomy that companies treat their products as being one thing and their supply chains as being a different thing, and the reality obviously is that they're, they're highly, highly connected. Um, so you could have uh, hypothetically a ready meal that is a chicken based in, in 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 name that uh they reduce the amount of chicken and increase the amount of vegetables in there to make it more balanced product but at the same time working this with their supply chain to make sure that the uh, animal feed going into that chicken is not contributing to land use conversion and through through soy and things like that um so that what what we think we're going to move towards as an industry, the industry will move towards, is actually marrying these two ideas of fixing your supply chain and getting your products right. Um, but we're very much in the you know in the emergent stages of that, and I'm and I'm sure in the manufacturing sector there are, there are quite a lot of parallels there. Mm,
1: yeah, no, I'm sure there absolutely are. Um, So, uh, I've got a wonderfully open-ended question here, so feel free to jump in if you feel you can answer this. Should we be led by what consumers consider sustainable or what is actually a sustainable diet long-term? So, I guess implicit in that would be that we don't think that consumers know what a sustainable diet is, but that we as some experts do. Um, so, anyone anyone like to take a punt on
4: that question? Yeah, I will. Um, I'll, I'll just jump in with something I read in the Financial Times this week that I thought was quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. One of the FT journalists had lunch with the global CEO of McDonald's in a McDonald's restaurant, and the, the pull-out quote um, essentially was that they consider their menu to be essentially Darwinian. In other words, they will sell what customers will, will buy from them. Mm. um whilst loosely acknowledging that their marketing power allow, would allow them to help customers to shift their diets in a certain direction, um, there, there was a, a little bit of uh, absolution of, of responsibility for that on their behalf. So I think that there is a risk that if if that becomes the mo across the food industry, then we, we're going we're going to walk ourselves into a whole lot of trouble. I think we do need to lead rather than respond.
1: I
2: think that's fair. Yeah, Joe. I I also think that, um, unfortunately, there is a kind of time limit to these things, um, especially when you look at climate change, you know, we have a net zero 2050 target, we have, um, we want to prevent, you know, uh, two degrees of global warming as far as we can, or let that be the maximum. So, and this places, this is, so this means that, Unfortunately, in 2020, we don't have all the time in the world to achieve the outcomes we want to achieve in terms of reduction of emissions with, with climate. And so I think it actually requires, you know, I, I think I think sometimes it's, it's unhelpful kind of bringing it to, because I think that, as, as Will referred to, like marketing and, and education and, 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 and movements can play a role in shaping understanding of what sustainability means, so, um, which... And industry and government and everybody has a role in, sh- in shaping that. But consumer understanding what sustainability means doesn't exist independently to what manufacturing understanding is. And they actually interrelate inter- in quite a complex way, which is the food system. Um, so, um, But but as a result, I think my pri- my primary thing is that actually we have to take an active role, and I agree with well, we have to take an active role in shaping consumers' understanding of this, because otherwise we will, we could, we're just running out of time. And that is a consequence we don't want to
1: see. Uh,
3: yes, Nikos. Well, um, I mean, um, I would very much agree with uh, the other speakers. I'm afraid maybe we are of the same sort of perspective. We have a very nice tool called risk analysis in, and embedded in our food law for a reason. Because somebody that is policy uh, sort of maker say risk managers and Joe, you're one. Yeah. They might kind of think, uh, oh, really can we continue like knowing we need twenty-five grams, thirty-five grams of fibers and my entire population, I am there to serve as UK government or EU, whatever not getting it, is that good? Certainly it's not. So then you ask the actual scientist to do risk assessment, and I think when the scientists deliver that risk assessment, you come across to see that, no, we cannot let people that lack the knowledge to go single-handedly. Obviously, we're not going to turn into a paternalistic state or society because, sorry... If you want to, to go the wrong way and I provided you the information, I suppose it's your choice. But regimentally, we need to go down the route. I mean, see what happened with the, the drink sector. We implemented this wonderful sugar tax. Do you know what is the fastest growing segment on NPD in the drink sector? Low-calorie drinks let me tell you, has done the best of efforts to reduce sugar intake from our UK population. Hopefully, we will roll this across the globe. And that must have saved quite a few money for our beloved NHS, since I'm talking to FDA convention, that could be spent to other reasons. So wholeheartedly we need to be pragmatic and we need to enforce the tools we have put in our legislation and use the risk analysis and do a lot of risk communication to people, not in a paternalistic way, but have a dialogue. And if I dare say, why do you need uh, preservatives or complicated things in sectors of categories like frozen food? And yet people are bit blasé on the fraudulent category, that you don't need preservatives, you could be a bit more creative. Yes, it's not that clever, the outcome at the end. Some people say, oh, I want it chill. But we need also to educate about how great it is that you have your portion of peace. Yeah? Um, that That's as a perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure
4: we could
1: have a whole separate session on uh, the values of an extra tax on food. And I know it's something that Joe is also considering in his work at the moment. Um, Jenny, I wanted to bring you in. I also wanted to let you know we've had a a plea from someone for you to share the research that you're uh, talking about. Um, But I just wondered if, if within that research, if you could expand a little bit around, um, you know, how much of us issue consumers... Did indicate they felt sustainability was, and their kind of sense of what they could do um, to it within this kind of food choices aspect.
0: I guess. So I suppose from a kind of food, going back to our previous question as well, I think it's a, it's a joint response between um, consumers driving the demand, but the food industry having the products that are available for the consumers to buy. So there's kind of there's, there's kind of those two aspects. From kind of a consumer behavior point of view, you need to understand there's kind of like two systems. And like system two is always the thoughtful, the reflective, when you're doing something new and for the first time. And I think we need to move people, their thoughts about healthy diets and sustainability from, we need to kind of educate them from that point of view, but they need to move into like the system one where it becomes a habit and I think what the research was showing is that people did realize that they needed to change their behavior. They needed to change their habits. So I think it's moving from that sort of conscious system one to the less conscious, more automatic. And I don't think we're there yet. So we've still got to work on that, that kind of system one where their thought form reflectives. And I think we're at that point at the minute. Interesting. Um, oh, and quite an interesting comment here. Uh,
1: still on the kind of thinking about blended products more, but how, um, I guess people's perceptions uh, can be quite difficult to alter. I think we'd all agree with that. Um, and that actually, the that what we're talking about today, which is around sustainable plant based proteins, actually, historically, would have been seen as being a cheap filler so that you could get away with using less meat. Um, and so, consumers, how do we kind of change, I guess, that perception of value um, within a food product, so that those, to your point, Jenny, they become the choices you go for, as opposed to looking at your meal and thinking, "Oh, well, that's that's a bit unfair. I've only got whatever it is three pieces of beef. <laughs> I was expecting lots more." Um, so that, I guess, how would we, how do we try and move consumers down into that that way of thinking? Jenny, I'm
0: gonna put you on the spot again. You're gonna put me on the spot. That's okay. That's fine. Um I think I think it's I think it's a difficult one. However, I would never have predicted the number of vegan products that have come on the market. We seem to have gone from meat eaters to vegan. And I mean, you are again again going to have micronutrient issues um, around people moving to a totally vegan diet. So that's something that I didn't see coming. Um And I think that's kind of, as Nico was saying, it's like the two extremes. And actually, we want to sit somewhere in between. So I think people need to understand more about the foods they're eating, more about why particular things are in those particular foods. So um, because you've got to understand about a product, what you can take out, what you can put in. So all the complexity um, around reformulation the complexity of moving from meat-based into plant-based and the different technologies um, that you need, um, the different types of ingredients, what are the regulatory processes. There's so much involved, but I think it's it's kind of taking those consumers with you as well and saying there is an alternative to completely vegan is something in between. And I think it's that in-between area that we need to be focusing on. Mm.
1: And Jo, I think as part of the National Food Strategy work, you have been having kind of consumer or citizen engagement Um, as has as any of this sort of thinking come through as you've talked to
2: people yeah so so that's a really good uh, so just to expand for those who don't know we had um we engaged with over 200 citizens i think possibly more but over five parts of the country so grimsby bristol lewisham norwich um and I always forget the last one because I can know you in before things in my head it seems in one time. Um, so, um, so, so, so we 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 got we 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 spoke to these people. Um, we had oh Kendall. Um, we had we spoke to, we spoke to people across the country. We had face to face workshops. Then COVID hit and we turned them on online. Um, and we presented them. The idea was to really talk to these citizens and try and, and try and get them to wrestle with some of the trade offs that came with. Trade policy. I mean, we we covered everything: trade policy, but but also health and sustainable diets, and and what and what that meant. And I think that one of the things that um, came to people, and I appreciate this is a kind of systems two conversation we're having here, Jenny, because we were ed- we were educated these people, and then we asked them to kind of make decisions and think about what they wanted from government as a result of that. But they were actually quite pro this idea, um, or uh, generally for this idea of, of choice editing, saying, "Look, I don't want." A hundred kinds of burger and have to choose the best one for the environment and my health from those bur- from that burger, I want my burger to be healthy and good for the environment as the kind of basic choice and and that kind of um, and that, and that that came out quite strongly you know they don 't want they don 't want to get rid of chocolate bars they don 't want to get rid of um, anything they want to have an element of choice but th- but there is a sense of kind of too much choice actually doesn't help you either. Um and, and that was something that came out of our citizens engagement. And so it's something that we are exploring and um and 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 we're interested in as part of the national food strategy. Does that help and answer some of your question? Uh,
1: yes. <laughs> um, well, I was just just thinking, I mean obviously we've just been talking there a little bit about the consumer, but kind of thinking about business um particularly um, and if there are, I mean, the, the plating of progress, I think you've maybe had two of those reports now, is that right? Um, and I was wondering how, if there are learnings we can take from those reports maybe that companies who are haven't been involved to date, but maybe to kind of focus thinking around where they maybe should be considering putting in targets or metrics, the types of things they maybe should think about?
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've been doing the work for for nearly three years now. So we we brought out a report in 2019 and then 2020. So what we're planning to do is to provide an update every year, obviously. Um, And we we update the the dashboard um, every six months. Um, So it gives, it essentially allows us to capture the slightly different reporting schedules across different companies as much as anything. But what, what we've seen become much more clear in the last 12 months is when you look at it through the through the lens of the investors, they are going through a transition of worrying about single issues such as deforestation to understanding the whole piece a lot better and looking for companies to actually set um, it's an uncomfortable phrase for the industry but sales weighted targets. That indicate that they're shifting their business models into a uh, a new um, a new way of working that de-risks a lot of their products and their supply chains, but also capitalizes on the sort of opportunities we're talking about in terms of um, in terms of custo- customer demand. So we're starting to see investors to 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 understand this a lot better. Um, and if you look at it, if you look at the context of twenty twenty. Um, We've seen a lot of the food industry are having um, not an not an entirely easy time of COVID. Uh, it's affected different sectors in different ways, obviously. But for example, the 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 out of home sector has very very publicly had a difficult time this year. Um, so the requirements for refinancing and access to capital are potentially going to be greater in the, in the next period, which does make does give investors an important role to play. And what I think as a sector as a whole we need to understand is when when we refer to investors in the case of plating of progress we're mainly looking at the the asset managers and the pension funds um, the institutional investors that are investing in in PLC's but actually I've had my own food food business in the past when you when you open up what we mean by investors we're also talking about banks um, so we're talking about things like um, credit facilities from banks that that take into account sustainability. So for example, Sodexo and Tesco both have a um, revolving credit facility that is tied to certain environmental performances and I think actually we're going to start seeing this come into more mainstream banking. So if you're a food business with an overdraft or looking for a loan, increasingly we're going to start to see the banks ask you what you're doing on certain key issues. Um, so it'll, it'll it'll come away from um, stocks and shares, if you like, and more into the actual allocation of capital and, and access to capital. So big and small probably should be paying attention to this is, is I guess, what I'm saying.
1: Mm. Okay. No, interesting. And of course, any, as you say, that kind of has more uh, people not just within a company but within those um, broader... Um, businesses that impact, and and certainly access to finance obviously is a huge impact, Um, that will obviously drive engagement and and people's thinking clearly. Um, So we've had a question in um, which I guess kind of links to what is it companies should be aiming at, um, but also links back into the consumer question around, as a company, should you be kind of looking within your reformulation or your MPD towards uh, creating more vegan foods, looking at um, a non-dairy vegetarian or kind of more vegetarian food. So I guess all of that is taking it beyond the blended we were talking about earlier. Well, no dairy keeps it in there, I suppose, but certainly away from meat. Um, but is there a is it better for companies to just sort of jump straight across and, and try and go all out vegan, do people feel? Or should they be looking at that kind of range across their portfolio?
0: Uh, yes. Do you want me to pick this one up? Yeah, go on. You go first. Uh, and then I think. Things. I think. I think it depends on the company's existing product range mm-hmm. um, at the moment as to where they're sitting. We are seeing a lot of meat-based companies moving into plant-based. We're seeing a lot of dairy companies moving into plant-based. Um, mm-hmm. as well, I think as we discussed before. There are a number of vegan products on the market, but also I think there's um, there's a place in the market for adding going back to Joe's point about our fruit and vegetables into products from a more covert point of view. Because a lot of if you think about a lot of the work that was done on salt reduction, it was a very covert approach. So fruit and vegetables is not people's favourite cup of tea, as we know. Um, So if you're actually adding fruit and vegetables into products covertly to make them a healthier, more sustainable product, um, I think consumers will will want products like that. Um, So I, I think going back to the question of more vegan, more dairy, more veggie, I think it depends on what your business is. Mm. At the moment, but I would go down the kind of middle vegetarian um, area. Mm.
1: Yeah,
3: I think I'd agree. Yes, uh, Nikos, I think you wanted to come in there as well. If, if I may add, I mean, uh, we, we agree violently, Jenny, about this. Uh, you need to analyze your consumers and willy-nilly, you cannot just go and say, well, we will move. Because if you move faster than your core Uh, customers, I'm afraid that might be a very fatal move, uh, depending on the size of your company and how quickly you could go back. I mean, and the salt reduction is a great area, but I remember when was happening, when I was in in the industry, there were a few agonizing moments and uh, when we were not all the sector regimentally moving with it. Uh, sales of products were plummeting, so a bit of a of a balanced approach, knowing what the consumers are, is always essential. And the the other element I I think is, at some point we need to do perhaps, and I don't know. I would ask a question, if I may, to to Joe, uh, are we doing any analysis, any risk analysis about what kind of risk we run when when we need to do the transition and what risks the transition from the more high animal-based diets to the increasingly lower animal diets will have for populations. I mean, obviously, DEFRA will deal with the UK population, but perhaps a wider element along the lines that the thing Jenny or perhaps Will were, were talking before. What's the the wisdom there in the risk management area? Yeah.
2: So, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you the, the kind of. I, so I can think I can tick some things off. Like, firstly, I don't have any kind of risk management, on a, risk management on a global level, unfortunately. It's a really, really excellent point in looking at kind of national, but like. Um, to be honest, like the national food strategy looks at England. That's quite enough for me to kind of like bite have on my plate at the moment. I don't know if I even want to go down that route. Um, I have the kind of mental capacity to do so. Um, I think on a, um, so on a kind of England scale, like what will be the consequence of shifting, you know, to a more, let's say, alternative protein diet, plant-based protein diet, um, we are aware that there is, is there kind of, has there a formal risk analysis been done of it? No, but it's something that we are, I, I actually, I've, I've kind of been tasked with researching and trying to find out some, something with, regard, with regards to that. Um, but I also think that what you always want to be careful is that, you know, you're not, it's probably, we're probably not going to go wholesale from one to the other there's always going to be the new food system will be, let's say the new food system, this new food utopia, will will look different, but there'll be diversity, there will be some like higher, hopefully there'll be some higher consumption of you know normal fruit and veg where you can absorb nutrients. Yes, there might be a bit more alternative protein, but meat's not going to disappear overnight either. And 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 will and will still have a role um to play. And and so I think that um it's quite a hard thing to actually get your head around a model because you're not saying... Because the question of if we went from all meat to all alternative protein, you could model that, you kind of work it out. But that's not what the world's going to look like. The question is, if we went from some meat to some alternative protein alongside eating more fruit and vegetables from farming and stuff like that, and alongside some kind of sustainable intensification of livestock farming what does that look like in terms of nutrient intake, which is a much harder, there are much more variables in that and kind of understanding your risk your, your risk analysis around that. So that's kind of where we are in trying to understand that problem and, and it's and it's quite difficult as a result. Um, but if you think I'm being too simplistic, a bit naive in my approach, I'd love to know because dumb it down for me and let me know the answer and I'm all ears.
3: Yeah, okay. well, if I, if, I, if, I, if I dare say, yeah, yeah, um, <clears throat> I do teach risk analysis to my students. And, and, you know, the easiest thing everybody could do is to sit on the chair and fire at the government, the policymakers. Isn't it easy? Oh, you haven't done it right. But then you sit on your chair comfortably. And the biggest example I know is the BSE. There were people calling to decimate an entire sector. The animal husbandry in UK, in some people, at the start of the BSE, was to be decimated to save human lives. Obviously, a human life is sacred, but you could have a calculation when you drop on the financial segment how many kind of desperate end-of-life actions you get from people who lost their livelihood as well. So, and the balance of now, of the benefit of the hindsight, we know we lost 300 people, and it's dreadful, but it was not balanced to just decimate an entire area. So it's difficult. Nobody ever is being in your shoes. It's always nice that you're a scientist because we deal with the facts and we enjoy being on certainty. And then we pass people on elected because that will make sense, right? Isn't it? To, To kind do the decision and thank God, Buddha, Allah and the other deities why this is happening. I am of the opinion, if I dare say, that perhaps it might be a good idea to have a first scoping exercise on the potential impact the movement to a high vegetarian vegetable or plant based components in the diets is. Because then by doing the exercise involving the 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 people that are relevant and knowledgeable in the different areas, you might open up an awareness in the policy areas that you might want to start working with the partners, the social partners that need briefing and interaction. It's a long process, but the shorter time, the earlier you do it, the better you're placed in working right. And we need to work with the consumers. We need to go out there because I think a lot of consumers, rightly or wrongly, uh, they are not doing what they need to do in their nutrition area and as we move more and more to the plan-based components which is a bless we need to cater for this but that's my personal opinion obviously and uh, good luck with whatever you're gonna do in the policy
1: indeed i think we would all say that um we are coming up towards the end of our time uh but i wanted to throw in another question on a slightly different um area that's been raised uh in the chat um, and it's around organic foods. So um, the question is about the level of pesticides and fertilisers that is currently used um, and how that could be viewed as not being sustainable. Um, and will the, the panel feel that the importance of organic food is going to change as we sort of shift to being more sustainable and consumers uh, have a broader awareness? Anyone has an opinion on
4: that? Yes, Will. Um, yeah, just really quickly because I'm, con- I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I'm, I'm sure all of us have, have seen the um, change, the potential for changes in the way farming is is subsidised um, in the next uh, in the ne- next few years. So um, I think that w- what we've seen at the moment with plating up progress is because we are re- currently reliant on broad brush certifications such as organic. Um, It actually is splitting the market quite a lot into what's considered a bit of a a niche or an an elite product, i.e. is it certified as organic? And then everything else that has no indicative certification attached to it. So it's very hard for consumers to make that choice. And I think actually by changing the, um, the way government incentivizes our farming system in the first place we're going to be able to bring out a much, bring forward much more useful information for, for consumers to actually make those choices. So I think this current reliance on this sort of dichotomy, is it organic or is it not organic, has is, is probably um, reached its shelf life for want of a uh, slightly inappropriate food pun. Um, and I think actually we'll see a very different framework coming through in terms of how we communicate sustainable, sustainably produced food to consumers in the next few years.
1: Interesting. And um, I think that that actually picks up on on a couple of points that we haven't got to in the chat around, you know, is there going to be a shift in how we actually communicate this to consumers? Um, And I guess also goes back to that dichotomy of it not just being meat or vegan, there's in between. So it's not just organic or not organic, there's a sort of a breadth that we can look at there. So maybe we all need to try and look towards the middle ground. I am conscious that we are slightly over time, but I just wanted to ask each of the panellists before we go, if there was, um, bear in mind, you've got quite a lot of big manufacturers listening into this. So if you had one thing that either you would suggest they focused on or one request that you would like to make, um, it would be great to hear it. I will start with Joe.
2: Uh, Goodness. Um, with 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 the proviso that I'm not Henry, um, I I, th- I th- think I think
1: you are,
2: as far as we're concerned. I'm not. I I I think that any I think it goes back to my kind of original point. Any, any work that could be done to um, make the health sustainable choice the default choice, particularly by adding fruit and vegetables into kind of processed products. Ready meals, um, which would, as turn, improve their health and sustainability. Um, if manufacturers and people could look at that and understand how feasible that would be, that would be fantastic.
4: Great. Right. Well, um, yeah, building on what Joe said, really, but more specific in terms of, of setting targets. Um, if we let the if we let things drift in the next ten years, the government's response to Facilitate a transition to healthy, and sustainable food systems will be more abrupt, and it will probably be more painful for the industry. So, if you start setting targets now, you do two things: one, you actually move your business in the right direction in the first place, and secondly, you give a clear signal to policymakers that you are actually um, serious about the transition. So, you get a more collaborative approach probably in the long run. Mm, yeah, no,
1: that's very, uh, very wise words. I would say, uh, Nikos.
3: Well, uh, I think for me, uh, I, I believe every person in the food industry wants to make healthy, nutritious, affordable products. And why we don't have them, I know most of the colleagues, because for me, the colleagues are there in the food sector, is because it costs a lot. It costs a lot if I have to up the fiber content on my snacks. It costs a lot if I have to open my protein, increase up my protein content. It's not easy and you need to balance the two. I would urge the dear colleagues in the food industry to go out there in open heads and open hearts and find out devalued plant material out of which they could create a wealth in underdeveloped part of the world and share the problems. And the example I want to really tell, if I'm not naughty, in Reading we have created an industrial process for detoxifying cassava leaves. Cassava leaves we made 300 million tons every year. 60 million of them are in confined in Nigeria, for instance. So, my colleagues in the food industry understand what this means if you have them you could get a lot of materials let's get the fibers for Europeans and let's leave quite a lot of proteins let's leave provitamin A carotenoids there is in the in the african production of cassava leaves there is enough carotenoid doses to beat Vitamin A deficiency wouldn't be wonderful. The technology is open. Nobody could have patent. We ruined the IPR of Reading deliberately because it was coming from this wonderful UK funding, which is called GCRF, the Global Challenges Research Fund, from the coffins of the UK taxpayer, plus the government who has done it and the people who instigated it. Now it's the time to go and start creating cheap, healthy ingredients for home that will benefit the people who paid the money for this research and leave healthy ingredients for the other part because that's the way we should work. We could create benefits. And thank you for the time and having me. Well,
1: great to remind us once again that this is, of course, not just a UK issue but global. And Jenny, what would you like to leave us with?
0: Finally, it's just it's to think about the nutritional quality of um, of ingredients, and also understand the impact of um, of manufacturing processes on kind of um, you know the sustainability aspect. And also, when we're talking globally as well, uh, links into that point is don't forget about the global regulatory frameworks. They're very complex. They differ worldwide. So it's really is think about that positive nutrition. What can we add into products as opposed to the current of what can we take out of the products? So that would be my take-home message.
1: Thank you. Well, um, thank you, uh, everyone who has listened in to us. Apologies for slightly overrunning there. Uh, It just uh, remains for me to thank our panellists, Will Nicholson from the Food Foundation, Dr Lucas Mavrudis from the University of Reading and from our sponsors, EIT Food, Joe James from DEFRA and Jenny Arthur from Leatherhead Food Research. I hope you'll be able to join us at the next session, which starts at one o'clock, focusing in on plastics and packaging, which will be hosted by my colleague, David Bellamy.
0: FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk.